bring the meeting to order, and David, thanks for uh, stepping in for me for a second. I was rushing over from an off-campus meeting, and uh, I want to welcome uh, those here. I know we'll have others joining us, and Heather, we thank you for being here. Uh, so uh, thank you, Deputy Secretary uh, Higginbottom, uh, for your continued service to our country and for your testimony today. State Department operations have not been authorized since 2003 which means the department's authorities are old and its budget has not been thoroughly reviewed in 13 years. One of our top priorities in this committee is to restore regular committee consideration of a State Department authorization bill, reviving a process that will help the department become more efficient and effective within a sustainable budget. The purpose of this hearing is to discuss some of the opportunities involved in reauthorizing State Department operations for the first time in over a decade. I think this can be a collaborative process, and certainly it's begun that way, and I thank you for the productive discussions the Department has, have, has been having with our staffs. As we build towards a bill that I hope will achieve bipartisan consensus, we've been studying the State Department's budget, considering its request for new authorities and examining ways to make existing programs more effective and efficient. We found many great stories about the work the Department is doing around the world to advance the United States' interest. We've also found many instances where we will be able to work constructively together to enhance ongoing Department efforts. The State Department's FY 2016 budget request for operations is 11% higher than last year which brings into question some of the issues we're dealing with relative to fiscal discipline and the reality of budget caps. A significant part of that inflated request is due to the increasing financial burden of UN peacekeeping. The U.S. contributes more than any other permanent members of the UN Security Council, all of them combined, and our share is still going up. Coupled with an increase in peacekeeping, keep peacekeeping missions around the world, this will only place added pressure on other priorities. But most of our focus has been on where we might achieve efficiencies in the nuts and bolts operations of the State Department. One of the potential inefficiencies we found is a proliferation of special envoys and representatives. This administration seems to keep increasing its reliance on these, quote, specials which duplicates the effort within the Bureau, dilutes the contribution of state's career staff, and circumvents Senate confirmation and oversight of senior letter leaders. Foreign Service special pays and allowances should also be reviewed. Right-sizing represents another opportunity for more efficient diplomacy. I hope you will address these issues in your testimony as well as the following. What you hope to achieve through the second quadrennial diplomatic and, de and development review. What you are doing to foster a more rigorous program evaluation across the department. And whether you think economic diplomacy gets the emphasis that it deserves. Again, thank you for being here. I look forward to our distinguished ranking members' comments and certainly your testimony. Well, Mr. Chairman, first, thank you for convening this hearing. I agree with you. This is a one of the most fundamental responsibilities of this committee is to give guidance on our foreign policy to our diplomats and to our development professionals, and that when we don't pass an authorization bill, we are not carrying that out the way we should. So I thank you very much for convening this hearing as we look at 
the possibility of reauthorizing uh, the Department of State. American diplomats and development professionals are the best examples of talented people that are on the front line uh, for America. Uh, and they face serious security and political challenges. So we can help. And the way Congress can help, we can demonstrate our commitment to their critical missions is to provide our diplomats and development agencies with the guidance, resources, and authorities they need to protect and extend U.S. interests and values around the world. So that means pass an authorization bill. Give them the guidance they need. I believe the Department of State has been hamstrung for, the, for too long by the lack of an authorizing legislation. In the absence of authorizing legislation, the Department of State has been forced to make some of these important reforms through administrative action. Administrative action can bring about change, but it doesn't give that long-term predictability that is so important. It can change in four years with the next administration. Uh, it at times uh, present, uh, presents challenges of morale. It presents challenges in the relationship with Congress. It would be much better if Congress uh, would pass an authorization bill. So I look forward to evaluating the success of the reforms that have been instituted uh, administratively, including the results of the first quadrennial di diplomacy and development review, and now as you're starting your second, uh, what your goals are uh, in the second review. Uh, Mr. Chairman, as you point out, there are many other issues that are involved here that we really need to take a look at as we look at authorizing legislation, including embassy and diplomatic security, workforce diversity, an issue that we've been concerned about, overseas comparability pay uh, for those who serve in the, the our, uh, embassies, UN reform is an area I know of interest, uh, how the human rights uh, portfolio is being handled under the Jay family of bureaus, the use of special envoys has been an issue, it's been a growing number, uh, and that can cause some real friction within the Department of State, uh, and how we use foreign service officers versus civilian uh, service and political appointments. I think these are all issues of legitimate concern to this committee, and I look forward to starting that debate with uh, the uh, Deputy Secretary of State. Thank you, Senator Carr. Now, I want to also uh, thank Senator Menendez, who helped uh, begin this process before, and certainly the role that uh, David Perdue and Tim Kaine are playing to make sure that this uh, moves along in an orderly way at the subcommittee process. But uh, uh, Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources, the Honorable Heather Higginbottom, will now present. We thank you for being here. We look forward to your testimony um, and the questions that you'll answer afterwards. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify today regarding a Department of State authorization bill. As you said, Mr. Chairman, it's been over a decade since uh, the Department of State last had an authorization bill, and the world has grown more complex in the years since. From countering Russian pressure in Europe, to placing economic diplomacy at the front of our global agenda, to combating ISIL alongside our coalition partners, we face a myriad of challenges and opportunities that impact our national security and our economic prosperity. To effectively meet these challenges, our diplomacy must be more agile, more effective, and more modern. In the coming weeks, the department will release the second Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review, which will define a streamlined set of cross-cutting policy goals and the internal reforms needed to maintain America's global leadership. 
This is a key step to allowing us to work better, smarter, and more safely and efficiently. But we cannot take these steps alone. We look to Congress as a partner in this effort. A State Department authorization bill would provide key authorities so that we can engage on a range of challenges to our national security and economic prosperity that are before us. We've proposed a set of authorities to the committee that fall into the following three areas. Improving the safety and security of US citizens and facilities overseas, making the most efficient use of our resources, and securing and retaining a talented workforce. I'll just highlight a few priorities. To enhance security, we're seeking authorities to help our diplomatic security officers protect soft targets overseas and support their ability to investigate and prosecute visa and passport fraud cases. We've also asked for authority to hire local guards by awarding contracts to the best value firms and not just the lowest bids, a critical authority for ensuring the best possible security profile at our missions overseas. We've requested authorities to add flexibility to our fee-funded consular functions through slight increases in certain border crossing fees and adjusted passport and visa surcharges, the department can increase the quality of its global consular and passport services and devote additional resources to combating all types of visa fraud. We've requested authority to pay our peacekeeping dues at the assessed rate through the contributions for international peacekeeping activities account, which will allow us to better shape and reform peacekeeping operations to deliver maximum impact. Finally, we're seeking key personnel authorities to enable the department to retain a talented workforce. Our top priority is to, is to secure full overseas comparability pay to ensure that our officers do not face a pay cut when they serve overseas. Mr. Chairman, the committee posed specific questions in its invitation to me, a few of which I'll address now and, and more, of course, in your questions. Your letter raised the need for more rigorous program evaluation across the department. I fully agree. Earlier this year, I issued a revised evaluation policy that will improve how we assess the breadth of programs and initiatives undertaken by the department, and I believe we can and should do more to build on these efforts. Your letter also asked for an update on United Nations reform and financial burden sharing. We firmly believe that emerging countries must pay their fair share of United Nations budgets. We expect to see assessment rates for larger developing countries continue to increase as scales are revised. We are also working to advance reforms to the scales methodology to better reflect changes to the global economy and ensure that wealthier developing countries shoulder a fair burden. And your letter raised the issue of whether economic diplomacy receives enough attention at the department. This is a critical issue. The 2015 QDDR will make economic diplomacy a key focus and it will make recommendations to ensure the competitive competitiveness of US businesses abroad and job growth back home. Mr. Chairman, a strong authorization bill will put the State Department on the best possible footing as we aggressively pursue the security and prosperity of the American people. Thank you, and I look forward to answering your questions. Well, appreciate that testimony. Uh, um, I just uh, give us a sense of how the absence of an enacted authorization has impacted the operations of state. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, in the absence of an authorization, we have uh, many authorities. We have uh, submitted to the committee about 60, many of which are non-controversial, but would really improve the efficiency and effectiveness of our operations. We have uh, pursued through the appropriations process authorities here and there, but that is temporary. It makes it very difficult to plan. And there are key things as it relates to some of our personnel uh, 
as well as security that we really need to have in, in, a, in an authorization in a permanent or a long-term way. And so uh, the inability to plan, the inability to use our resources most efficiently is the, is the biggest vulnerability we see without an authorization bill. So you are uh, working with an administration, a democratic administration, as a professional, and what you're saying is that this, this is not a partisan issue. Uh, not having an authorization impedes your ability to carry out our national interests around the world. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And as I'm sure you know, Secretary Kerry, as chairman of this committee, uh, wrote authorization bills for the same reasons that this committee is addressing it now. It will make our department and our national security uh, efforts better and stronger. Let me ask you a question. The UN's uh, peacekeeping assessments on the U.S. are approaching 30 percent despite being capped at 25% in U.S. law. Do the other prominent five Security Council members have a responsibility to share this burden with the United States at present? Absolutely. Uh, as you know, Mr. Chairman, the, um, there are a key set of countries that take full responsibility and greater responsibility for peacekeeping. We have worked uh, very, very closely with the UN, both on its general reform program, as well as cost efficiencies and savings in the peacekeeping programs. Um, these peacekeeping missions are, are really important and in important places, uh, but we've been doing everything we can uh, to reduce those costs. In fact, the price per peacekeeper has been reduced by $18 since 2009, in large part due to our efforts, and we're going to continue that, that effort. But let me ask you this. Why are we contributing above U.S. law? Uh, Mr. Chairman, one of the authorities that we're requesting um, is to increase the cap, which is now at 27%, I believe, to the assessed rate of 28%. Um, we need uh, authority to do that, and um, the assessment has gone up um, because the assessment is made as a result of our percentage of global GDP and then some offsets from developing countries that, that don't pay their, their amount, and so that can't pay that amount um, as part of the system. So what we need to do is um, undertake, continue to undertake our efforts to, to have the peacekeeping missions be cost efficient and effective and ensure that other countries are paying their fair share. And that's the, um, uh, the set of tools and the expectations we take to the negotiations on the scale uh, assessments in New York. But right now, they're not paying their fair share, right? And they sit on the UN Security Council. They have the ability, for instance, uh, to decide things like the Iran uh, deal, it seems. They have a very special status. And yet, uh, currently, if you looked at their GDPs, they're really not doing that. Is that correct? This is a major priority for us. And in the last negotiation, both China and Russia's uh, assessment was increased, UN budget assessment was increased by 50 percent. We think that's the right direction and that we have to do more. And they're, as they they're actually paying that? They're paying 50 percent more than they were before. And we think that's the right direction and we need to do more to in ensure that those countries uh, like China and Russia are paying their fair share. So I'm a, I'm a huge... Uh, uh, support of our foreign service officers, and I'm amazed at uh, much of what they do. And the fact is, in many cases, they're in, you know, very, very dangerous places, operating, uh, carrying out our nation's uh, interests, and in some cases, in expeditionary uh, kind of kind of situations. They receive an assortment of special pays, including overseas uh, comparability pay, cost of living adjustments, hardship pay, danger pay, priority staffing, post incentives, separation pay, and education and housing allowances. Uh, since F FSOs already receive significant extra compensation while abroad, uh, why are you advocating that we pay them as if they were in Washington? 
Um, Mr. Chairman, just to delineate between the two types of pay, overseas comparability pay is intended to ensure that foreign service officers, when they serve overseas, don't receive a cut in their basic pay. Um, the allowances and differentials that you reference are really about service in a particular country. So a cost of living adjustment, for example, is based on a basket of goods and an assessment in a country about what it will cost for our for foreign service officers to buy basic goods. Hardship pay is just that, places where there is significant risk of disease, pollution, et cetera. Um, danger pay is for those foreign service officers who, as you say, serve in some very, very dangerous places. So just to, to separate the two, um, the overseas comparability pay is about ensuring that when an officer leaves Washington, they're not looking at a 16% you know, pay cut or greater if we were to take all of the OCP provisions away. If they were, for example, to go to a, a quite dangerous place and receive danger pay and perhaps a COLA and so forth, and they didn't receive OCP, they'd essentially uh, be making the same amount. It wouldn't really provide that incentive. So we think both are important. Those, um, those allowances and differentials are reviewed regularly to ensure that they're pegged at the right level, um, and that's something we'd be happy to, to follow up with you on. Well, I think we need to. I, I just, uh, you know, the, the, most of the diplomatic posts worldwide have a cost of living adjustment when the vast majority of them are living, uh, have cheaper local prices than Washington. And I'm just curious, I know we'll talk privately, and I can't tell whether this is something you have to advocate for publicly and really don't care that much about privately uh, or not, but I, it just seems to me that it's, that it's odd that uh, that uh, you would have both DC locality pay and a cost of living adjustment. And I do look forward to talking to you about that. And again, I, I am uh, significantly uh, supportive of, of what our foreign service officers do. With that, uh, I'll turn to the ranking member. Thank you. I know that uh, we'll have numbers of questions to follow up. And I again, want to thank uh, Senator Perdue and Senator Kane for their efforts at the subcommittee level. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, just to follow up on the overseas comparability pay issue. Uh, I strongly support that. The two tranches have been included in your budget. The third has not. And following up on Senator Corker's point, uh, I understand you have not included that because it's not authorized. But it seems to me that you could have submitted it with authorization. So uh, how high of a priority is this? I hope it is a high priority. It's absolutely a, a top priority, as I said in my testimony. Um, we didn't put it in our FY16 request. Um, we are pursuing the authorization. However, if we are provided the authorization or the ability to provide the third tranche, we would use we would pursue reprogramming uh, in consultation, of course, with Congress um, to do that. We believe we have the uh, sufficient resources to address it if we were to receive it in this uh, in this year fiscal year. Oh, I thank you for that clarification and. Um, I hope we can work together to get that authorized, because uh, I think it's an important uh, point. Uh, let, let me just turn to the Jay family of bureaus for one moment. Uh, the first uh, quadrennial diplomacy and development uh, review created two undersecretaries, one for human rights, one for economics. And I want to talk a little bit about the human rights for one moment. It certainly put a focus on it. But there's a concern it also could have stovepiped the concerns rather than having all of the departments working together to advance the goals of, of human rights. What steps have you taken to make sure that this is the priorities uh, of human rights are shared uh, through all the functions of the Department of State? 
Thank you, Senator. Um, we really take our guidance and direction from the Secretary on this, and as he has said multiple times, human rights are part of our bilateral engagement across the world, and it's really U.S. leadership that has, in many, many places, put these issues on the map. Um, we face this tension around um, uh, specific issues and regional or, or, or regional bureaus and uh, in, in many in, in many fronts, um, and it's really important that we have good integration across the organization and at post of these priorities. And so that's the, the directive that is given um, to do that. We have a very strong assistant secretary uh, who deals with human rights issues, and he's consistently working, identifying priority countries and working with those assistant secretaries and with those teams to highlight where we can make progress. He does uh, his own travel as does the undersecretary to those places to advance those issues in coordination and collaboration with the regional bureaus and posts. So it's really the direction from the top that's important and then the uh, continued uh, follow-up that, that's critical. And you know, this is an area we always, I think, can do better on in ensuring we have coordination and collaboration, and it has to be about leadership and it has to be about commitment to the issues. I would hope that as we move forward in considering authorization, that you'll have some specific recommendations in regards to both baskets, the economic basket and the human rights basket that came out of the review, as to how we can give statutory uh, strength to that commitment uh, within the entire department on focus. Thank you, Senator. And I think when you see the, the second quadrennial diplomacy and development review shortly, um, we are paying close attention to those issues and how internally we can uh, better integrate and highlight uh, both on human rights and on economic diplomacy. Thank you. Let, let me turn to international organizations for one moment. Uh, the chair mentioned the United Nations and the reforms within the United Nations. And um, there is always concerned about the United Nations. I'm a strong supporter of our participation in the United Nations, let me make that clear, but there are concerns about how it functions. We saw during the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that uh, UNRWA was involved perhaps in, in hiding missiles and, uh, from Hamas. Those types of concerns are obviously counter to the mission of the United Nations. What, what type of accountability, considering our significant participation, do we have to make sure that the United Nations is more efficient and focused on its principal missions? Thank you, Senator. Um, we acknowledge the UN system is not perfect, and, and that's why uh, we have been so focused on the reform agenda in this administration. Um, we think it's essential to dealing with the many global challenges we're facing, but that we must bring our leverage, the fact that we make a significant contribution to the system to increase transparency, accountability. Um, there are several specific um, uh, reform agenda items that we have pressed. One is transparency of the evaluation and audit functions. Um, we have, uh, we're working with them right now to strengthen whistleblower protections. Um, be, due to some of the work that we've done with them, they've saved over $100 million in recovered funds that were improperly dispersed. And, and it's our belief that our focus and attention on these issues is critical to ensuring that this agenda is undertaken at the UN. So we've, we continue this focus and we'll, we'll, we'll continue bringing it forward. Um, I, we've also um, been successful in supporting an independent audit of advisory committee, which is, systematically looks at, at these issues. So um, this is a focus we'll continue going forward. A lot of times the other uh, regional organizations that we belong to get lumped into one discussion and they're all quite different. Uh, I'm very familiar with the OSCE, having uh, been the chair and, uh, of the Helsinki Commission here uh, in the last Congress. 
And I think we all recognize the importance of the OSCE in the recent ongoing problems between Ukraine and Russia and the role that it has played. Uh, it is a, a model organization uh, as far as the uh, ability to have a consequential impact for stability in Europe and Central Asia. The OAS is not quite as uh, visible in its help in dealing with some of the regional problems in our own hemisphere, even though it's located, headquartered right here in Washington. So what review is being done of the regional organizations so that we take the best practices where they're working and try to improve the other organizations we belong to and make substantial contributions so that they can be more effective in carrying out U.S. Uh, goals? Thank you, Senator. Our Bureau of International Organizations is very focused on this question. Um, I, I actually was able to attend the last um, meeting of the OAS, and a big part of the conversation there was about how we strengthen that uh, organization. And a lot of it was informed by best practices in other uh, regional or multilateral organizations. So how it works bureaucratically at the State Department is that um, our bureau that fo focuses exclusively on international organization works closely with a regional bureau that has the principal diplomatic engagement uh, uh, role. And in a lot of places, um, it, is, it is about political will, it is about aligning support, it's about bilater bilateral engagement behind these reform efforts. So I, I think some of that is going on in a productive way, particularly in the OAS. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Blue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you, Ranking Member uh, Senator Cardin. I want to thank uh, both of you for your leadership uh, last week, um, Senator Cardin, in very difficult circumstances, uh, stepping in. But I, I want to thank um, people on both sides of the aisle. Last week, I think we had a milestone of bipartisanship. As a new member, I'm very encouraged. Uh, I think today is another example of an opportunity we have to do the right thing and uh, put partisanship aside and help the State Department through this reauthorization. Um, Madam Secretary, thank you for your forbearance and for your um, initiative in reaching out to the committee and uh, helping us understand some of the issues. Uh, for the record, I want it to be noted that uh, uh, Secretary Higginbotham has, has uh, been very forthright uh, in private meetings and uh, has helped us prepare for today's um, um, uh, hearing. I'd also like to thank uh, Senator Kane for his leadership. He and I co-chaired this uh, uh, subcommittee yesterday, and we had a lot of good information with the Inspector General. I'd like to follow up on two observations, I think, that came out of that, uh, Madam Secretary. I think th there were two issues that were brought up before the committee yesterday. One was IT independence of um, <clears throat> the Inspector General's office, and the other is right of first refusal for uh, a look at um, accusations or evidence um, around uh, misconduct within the organization. Uh, I'm anxious to get to the operational issues because you're the COO of a $50 billion operation. And uh, with my background, I'd love, uh, you and I have had great conversations. I'd like to have more for the record. But today, I'd like you to focus on uh, this, this IT issue with me just a, a minute. Um, you know, it looks like there are thousands of administrators that work for state um, who might or might not have access to independent um, investigations and um, as well as it, it, it looked to me like yesterday when we asked the question, if there was a breach in the state system, the IG wouldn't necessarily know it immediately. Um, Mr. Linick actually testified yesterday that uh, the state uh, network has actually been attacked and uh, that it affected the, uh, the office of the Inspector General. He also told us that it took over six months to get an agreement with the diplomat diplomatic security 
going forward, uh, they'll notify the OIG uh, when they go on their IT network. That's a memo as, of understanding as I uh, understand it, and with the change of administration, that may or may not be continued into the next administration. Would you comment on this IT independence issue and also write a first refusal as well as this potential breach uh, issue? Yes, thank you, Senator, and I've enjoyed our conversations. Look forward to continuing them. Um, I meet, as you know, with the IG every week. Um, we discuss issues uh, like the ones you just raised. Um, we worked through the issue of trying to get an MOU so that uh, there was notification of any uh, entry onto the system. Just recently, the IG has brought to my attention, as well as to the secretaries, the request for a separate IT system. We're looking at that very carefully. We're um, seeking to understand how it would work. They need to have, as he testified yesterday, some access to the systems they currently have, the architecture, we have to make sure our system is, is as secure as it possibly can be, given uh, we are attacked every day, thousands of times a day. Um, so we have to work, those are, those are difficult issues, but we're, we're looking at that now and examining it. It's also important we understand the cost. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt. Have, have you actually had a breach that you can talk about? Uh, I, I can tell you, uh, Senator, that we have been breached. This has been reported. Um, any further details of that, um, be happy to have in a different setting. Um, uh, so we continue to work through that, and uh, I look forward to making progress on understanding how it would work and what it would cost. Uh, with respect to the right of first refusal, this is an issue that, um, as you know, Secretary Kerry appointed uh, the IG, a confirmed IG, which is important. Um, he's been looking uh, at a, a variety of different functions to understand um, how this office is set up, and this is an issue he's brought to our attention. Uh, I have some information that we are analyzing to understand how it would affect statutory authorities we have, for example, in uh, reporting civil rights violations and other things. So we're continuing to talk and understand what this will take. Um, and I have confidence that we're going to be able to work through it. Thank you. Let me echo the uh, chairman's comments earlier about um, foreign service um, uh, professionals. Uh, I've just returned from a trip to, uh, to Afghanistan and Iraq, and I have to tell you my observations are that these men and women are the best and the brightest. Uh, they're, they're working in very tough situations. Uh, they deserve our highest support. And uh, they're doing a fantastic job right now. So I am honored to be an American to have these people uh, supporting us out there. Yesterday in testimony, the Inspector General highlighted the three purposes or missions, if you will. And, and if these are incorrect, I'd love for you to add to them. Um, being the COO of the State Department, it's your job basically to make sure these missions are fulfilled operationally. Uh, one is to improve the protection of people. These are the Foreign Service professionals as well as here at home. The second is management of contracts, spending of money, procurement, and grants. And then the security of sensitive information. You've spoken to the third one. Would you speak to the other two and then talk about the operational difficulties you've seen in the first year and what conclusions you're coming to in terms of improving the effectiveness? Thank you, Senator. Uh, the safety and security of our personnel and facilities is of critical importance. It starts with the Secretary, and, and it's uh, certainly my responsibility as well. Um, since the tragic events in Benghazi, we have done a full-scale review of our security process, uh, uh, posture, processes, et cetera. Um, that's a major focus of my time. I meet every week with our um, diplomatic security assistant secretary. Uh, we are in weekly meetings on all of these issues, um, overseeing ARB implementation, et cetera. It's a, it's a major part of, of my responsibility and, what, and the department's responsibility. Um, and we can, I can go into more detail about that. With respect to contracts and grants, um, we really appreciate that the IG has created this new tool or mechanism to highlight where he sees 
big weaknesses. And in this case, uh, he's highlighted IT security contracts and grants. And, and we received nine specific recommendations uh, that we have moved forward with. And it's, it's this role, a robust IG role, that Secretary Kerry wanted to have in appointing a confirmed IG. So we appreciate this collaboration. But it's not just implementing those recommendations, which we've done. It's the continued attention and focus on it. And, and when Steve and I meet, when the Inspector General and I meet, we talk about, about these things regularly. Well, I have to say for the record, he said the same thing. Um, he highlights these two areas, but we've all had auditors in past lives, and uh, his, his role is beyond that. His role is to be a partner of yours, and I, I applaud you for looking at it that way. Mr. Chairman, that, that's all I have now. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm glad we have someone who's run major operations, dealing with somebody who's running a major operation to work with this, and uh, with that, uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Madam Secretary, for being here. <coughs> Excuse me, with us today. Let me um, add uh, my compliments uh, to Senator Perdue's with respect to the men and women who are serving uh, as danger and chaos spreads around the globe. There are very few places in which you can be working for the State Department and feel totally safe and secure. And so I think we're all in, in awe of the great work that they do. Um, you know, I know we're talking about uh, the confines of your budget allocation and what you get to do within that budget allocation, but just to lend just a bit of perspective here, um, in 1950, when the United States was helping to rebuild Europe, win friends, try to marginalize our enemies, we were spending at that point about 3% of our total GDP on foreign aid. Today, that number is about 0.1%, 0.2% of overall GDP. That's a 94% reduction in the amount of money that we're spending to try to win friends and influence enemies and adversaries around the world with respect to our State Department budget. Um, I don't know that the effectiveness of that programming has decreased by 94% during that time. Um, at the same time, today our DOD budget is about 10 times that of our State Department uh, budget. I don't know that the tools in our military budget are 10 times as effective as the tools that you have. So I hope that over time we'll get to have a conversation about um, whether the allocation that we're giving the State Department today, um, given the kind of threats that we face, is sufficient. Um, but given that we're stuck where we are, um, I wanted to ask you about flexibility um, today. Um, I, just you know, two quick examples. Um, as we have some modicum of success in pushing al-Shabaab uh, out of uh, some of its safe havens in Somalia, they're moving. Um, for instance, they're moving into Kenya, uh, something that we might not have thought of a year or two ago. In the Middle East, the World Food Program ran out of money at the end of last year, all of a sudden threatening to be unable to feed thousands of refugees who were going to probably turn to extremist groups like ISIS if they didn't get fed through the World Food Program. Examples of where the State Department needs to move money when circumstances change. Um, can you speak a little bit about your ability uh, to move money within your budget and what we could do in the context of an authorization to unearmark some of these dollars that probably are counterproductive the way that they're programmed today? Thank you, Senator, and, and both to you and Senator Purdue for the kind words about the Foreign Service officers. It means a great deal to them to, to hear that. Um, so there are so many complex challenges that we're dealing with, and as we budget, um, we can't anticipate all of them. 
Uh, we budget a, a year in advance. We work with Congress. We get appropriated resources. Um, and then an, an emerging crisis happens, and, and we need flexibility to be able to respond to it. Um, we, we work through a consultative process to try to do that, but that's a limited ability to move funds around. Um, we have some provisions in our appropriations uh, that allow us to move a certain percentage of funding, but it's very often insufficient to meet what a need is, uh, and it's extremely challenging. Um, we also, I mean, just in terms of the overall allocation question, obviously uh, this is a, t a difficult time in terms of the overall top line budget number, and when we look at um, how the appropriations might process might shape up for next year, for example, if we see cuts to the extent that uh, they are being proposed, there are so many aspects of our operations and assistance that would be dramatically impacted, whether it's Syria humanitarian or some of the anti-ISIL work that we're doing. So it's a top of mind to us, but the flexibility is really critical. We're grateful for the flexibility we do have, but we need additional flexibility to really be able to respond and prevent uh, uh, things from becoming worse crises uh, than they have been, which is one of the reasons you, you hear Secretary Carter or other Defense Department officials supporting our budget requests, because they see it as an investment that protects uh, crises from growing and becoming uh, more of their problems. Um, an example of where you might want to shift resources into is public diplomacy. We've seen the militarization of information uh, from ISIS, from uh, the regime in Moscow, uh, and we're stuck with a pretty antiquated way of getting our message out. The uh, Broadcasting Board of Governors is getting better, but as we heard yesterday, they're a work in progress. Um, can you talk to us a little bit uh, about, as you're preparing this uh, strategic review, as you're asking for money, um, how you see the ability of the State Department to reform public diplomacy, uh, counter-propaganda campaigns, given the fact that our adversaries are plussing up these accounts, buying up press outlets, in the case of Russia and its periphery, uh, in a way that we could have never anticipated or would have been hard to anticipate just a few years ago. Yes, thank you. It's a really important priority, Senator, for the Secretary, for the Undersecretary of uh, uh, Public Diplomacy, who um, has been working very hard with uh, coalition with uh, countries around the world to counter the ISIL messaging in particular. Um, but we're doing it sort of out of hide, how, where we can find resources to support it. What we need to do is modernize the way in which we engage um, our public diplomacy efforts, and we're doing that. But we don't want to take that away from our traditional exchanges and other programs. Um, so we're, we're being as innovative as we can be and we are collaborating with partners around the world, but to really be able to, to, to be at the scale that we should be, we need uh, a, a much bigger investment there. Um, we do some metrics, of course, to see how our, anti, uh, our counter messaging is going, and we can see some progress, but it's not uh, commensurate with what, what we're dealing with. I, I would just make the pitch to my colleagues that the numbers we're talking about are actually not extraordinary. This is not billions of dollars. This is tens or hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that uh, are necessary in order to try to have some capacity to match what uh, countries like Russia are doing uh, in and around the region, a, a pretty um, uh, I'd say reasonable investment. Um, Mr. Chairman, to, to you and Senator Cardin, Senator Menendez, um, thank you very much for making this a priority. I know that the reauthorization hasn't happened for a long time because it's not easy, uh, because it's tough, because it puts us in the position of having some debates that are sometimes uncomfortable. But um, what I think a lot of us love about this committee is that um, through your leadership and Senator Menendez and now Senator Cardin, that the relevance of this committee has fundamentally changed and our ability to do a reauthorization, I think, uh, is part of a trend line that is uh, really, really positive when we talk about reasserting Congress's uh, role in being a co-equal branch with the administration on setting foreign policy. So thank you very much for this hearing.
Well, thank you. And I, if I could uh, uh, have take personal privilege for a moment, um, you know, it's 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 only eight issues where we've had the significant disagreements. And I think if we can build off an authorization, which doesn't have many of those issues in it, um, and do those things that we agree upon. I mean, you know, let's do this in a bipartisan way. We can give Heather and the department the flexibilities they need, the strength they need. We can build from that the next year. So uh, I thank you very much for your comments, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the Deputy Secretary for being here this morning. And uh, a couple of comments I've heard this morning I want to echo as well. Uh, Senator Perdue, myself, several other members traveled with uh, Leader McConnell to uh, the Middle East, uh, engaging in a series of conversations with leaders, but also the Foreign Service officers that we met were incredible professionals, uh, very, very well informed, uh, helping us uh, come up to speed on a number of issues. And, uh, you know, it's, it brings to light uh, reality that they face each and every day when we come back to work here and you see on the news a bombing at Erbil with the consulate uh, staff uh, right there that we had just met with in Erbil uh, just last week. And so thank you for the work that they do and to uh, the Chairman Corker, to the ranking member, I think it's nice to, to see a series of articles that are being written today. Uh, yesterday, Hill Publications, Off-Hill Publications, about sort of the thawing of dysfunction in Washington, D.C., and each story that talks about how we're starting to chip away at the dysfunction of Washington leads with the work that this committee is doing, or at least includes a mention of the work that this committee is doing. So it's nice to see, and I hope that that, that uh, sort of erosion of dysfunction in Washington, D.C. continues. So thanks for the work that you're doing. Uh, this is an important hearing, and it's important because America has to, uh, has a responsibility to maintain its leadership role around the world and to continue responsibly investing in our foreign assistance and diplomacy programs. As chairman of the East Asia and Pacific Subcommittee, I'm particularly concerned with sustained funding and oversight for this vitally important region. The East Asia Pacific region is comprised of 35 countries, a third of the world's population, and some of the world's most dynamic economies, including a rising China. We must ensure that our policies in the region strengthens existing friendships and builds new partnerships that will be crucial and critical to U.S. national security for generations to come. At the heart of the President's Asia pivot, or the rebalance uh, policy, is a shared belief that, the, that despite the crises of the day, our long-term strategic interests lie in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, this is why it's crucially important that we, we uh, conclude the landmark Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, and increase our security presence and our security partnership in the region to reassure our allies that the U.S. is here to stay. I'm not convinced that the State Department's funding priorities adequately reflect the intent of the rebalance policy. The administration is investing $846 million in this budget to support the rebalance policy, which is an 8% increase from 2014. However, if you consider the broader funding picture in the FY 2016 Foreign Operations Request, the EAP ranks dead last of any region at 4% of the total, and I believe that we need to do better. Uh, the questions we need to consistently be asking are, does U.S. Ass assistance help our partners in the region to address pressing security challenges such as countering China's destabilizing activities in the South China Sea or effectively responding to North Korea's continuing provocations? Are we building trade capacities in the region to enhance, uh, to enhance opportunities for U.S. exporters? Are we helping to promote democratic governance, enhance the rule of law, and improve human rights? That's why I was proud to author an amendment with Senator Cardin, Senator Menendez, to the budget resolution which passed unanimously, which sought independent oversight of our spending to support this important policy. 
later this year, uh, excuse me, last year, last year, uh, this committee authored a report titled Rebalancing the Rebalance, outlining some of the successes and shortcomings of the administration's policy. In particular, the report stated, and I quote, the administration can improve the effectiveness and sustainability of the rebalance policy by increasing civilian engagement, strengthening diplomatic partnerships, and empowering U.S. businesses. Do you believe the FY 2016 budget adequately reflects President Obama's stated goal to significantly increase our commitment to the Asia-Pacific region? Thank you very much, Senator. Um, the, the FY 16 budget as a whole reflects uh, what we think is a reasonable request to fund uh, our programs, operations, and foreign assistance. Uh, I think it's fair to say on behalf of the Secretary, um, we would like to have more than even what we were able to request in the President's budget. We understand uh, the budget constraints and the conversation that is happening uh, here and with the administration about overall discretionary funding levels. In fact, our request is above the uh, Budget Control Act levels, which uh, currently the budget committees are writing, uh, uh, have written bills to, and the appropriations committees will look at. So. Uh, overall, we'd like to have more resources for the Asia-Pacific region, uh, absolutely, and many other places as well. Um, we're trying to uh, manage um, uh, the best we can in a, a tough environment, and the fact that uh, given overall our, our budget request is about level, finding an 8% increase over the previous year's request means we're doing less of other things and we're trying to prioritize So with that, that answer in mind, do you believe the State Department's acted on the committee's recommendations outlined in the report that I cited? I have not reviewed that report, Senator. I'd be happy to follow up with you and, and, and provide some additional information. That would be great. Thank you. And what, what efforts, so initiatives, the State Department pursuing in, in the new year, the FY 2016 budget, to further our engagement and build partnerships in the EAP region? I just want to highlight the Trans-Pacific Partnership because that is, uh, in, in our view, the most critical um, part of our policy and our approach, obviously, uh, an issue that, that is being addressed up here right now, um, and that's critical. And there are several other initiatives we, we have been investing um, uh, in Burma. We've been looking at um, the, op the opportunities in Vietnam. I mean, there's a whole series of initiatives that we're trying to um, do to open markets and strengthen um, growing economies, and, and we'll continue uh, to have that focus going forward. I had a great conversation with a series of Asia policy experts last Last night, a long conversation about the importance of the United States presence in the region, the, the continued uh, willingness of U.S. policy leaders, policymakers to show up, to be a part of discussions. With the changeover in, in uh, elections every two years, every six years, uh, new people coming to the table, it's important that we continue to, to show up and to show uh, the region that we are committed to, to delivering our partnerships. And uh, the, the committee report that I mentioned also stated that the FY 2015 budget request for EAP's diplomatic engagement is the second to last of all six regional bureaus, or 8% of the total, despite the region's 35 countries accounting for nearly a third of both the world's population and GDP. Uh, furthermore, EAP bureau funding has decreased nearly 20, 20 excuse me, has decreased nearly 12% since its uh, 2011 peak. So uh, just a, a question that you may have to get back to me on, and I'm running out of time. Compared to the last five years, how has our diplomatic and trade engagement expanded? How many new foreign affairs officers and trade promotion officials have we added to the region? I'd be happy to follow up with you. I don't, I don't have that data today, but we'll, we'll do that. That'd be great. And I, the, the numbers I cited from 2015 would be curious about how they reflected in the 2016 request as well. we'll Thank you, that. Mr. Chairman. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I appreciate you continuing to move in this direction. I think this is one of the most critical elements that the committee can pursue. It's a serious 
undertaking and one that ultimately is, I think, primal in terms of what the committee's effort should be to help the State Department achieve its goals. And I want to echo the statements uh, made about our foreign service officers. I think they're the unsung heroes of national security and national interest promotion uh, for our country, and uh, recognizing them is incredibly important, which is why I want to come to my first question. Uh, when you were here before the committee about a year and a half ago uh, as the nominee, I raised questions with you about our diversity uh, in the Foreign Service and in the senior <coughs> Foreign Service. And to be honest with you, a year and a half later, I don't see anything much better, uh, which is disappointing. I don't see any real effort to have the Foreign Service reflect the face of America which I think is incredibly important uh, in terms of promoting our, uh, the essence of America abroad, in addition to its ideas and ideals. I've heard from several groups about the impact of assignment restrictions and preclusion programs that appear to desperately impact uh, Hispanic, African American, and other uh, ethnic groups. So what can you tell me today that is better significantly in any way uh, than it was a year and a half ago. Thank you, Senator. Um, uh, what I can tell you is what I've done uh, since I was last before this committee on this, on this question. Um, when I was confirmed, one of the very first things I did was ask for a comprehensive review of what steps we've taken, um, what the data looks like, and what tools we have have resulted in the improvements that we have seen in the diversity of the Foreign Service and the Civil Service. Um, that was a, a, a very data-driven and a very exhaustive review um, that really showed that the biggest impact we've had was with the changes in the exam procedures that Secretary Rice initiated several years ago, and that's had the greatest impact. The second greatest impact has been uh, the Pickering and Rango Fellow programs, and those are uh, programs that we think are vitally important, and we can see and track how people are coming in and their, uh, their those, racial and Those have existed program. for some time, though. They have, and we're looking at um, how people learn about them, how they apply, how they come in. Those are really important. Um, the place where I think we have room for improvement and we're making improvements just with our existing resources. First, um, we have some paid advertising for recruiting. Uh, I'm not convinced that that is necessarily moving the needle in terms of who is applying, and we're looking at that closely to see how we might change that. Um, and the second is our Diplomats in Residence program, which is a very important uh, program in which we have diplomats at universities doing recruiting. And I, I met with all of them when they were in Washington recently to talk about how their strategic plans needed to be more uh, closely aligned with what our uh, diversity priorities are. I'm working closely with our newly confirmed Director General, uh, Ambassador Chacon, whom you know, on this question, and it's really, really important. So um, I can't point to a specific number today, Senator, but I can tell you it has our attention and our focus. But the thing that is even more important in my mind right now than recruitment is ensuring that we are really focused on retention of the diverse uh, Foreign Service officers we do have so that we can see them in the senior levels as they come through the system. Well, let me just say that I, I appreciate your answer, but nothing that you've said there is different than what was happening before. Nothing. And so if nothing changes in terms of how you approach it, nothing will change in terms of the results. The State Department has one of the worst records of diversity of all the federal agencies. And it is, of all of the places in my mind, one of the most critical ones to be able to pursue this. So I'm disappointed that a year and a half later, I basically heard your answer be a uh, 
replicating what has already taken place. So it seems to me that unless from the very top there is a clear message uh, throughout the department that diversity is important and that part of the judgment standards that will be held against those who are in management positions is how well are you doing in this regard. That's, that's not going to change. And I hope you're going to look at this assignment restrictions and preclusion programs because that only exacerbates the problem. Uh, and if you're going to have a quadrennial review, I just hope you also have some element in there about how you're going to change uh, what is an issue that I've been working on since my days in the House of Representatives, so it's not just this administration goes back several, but it hasn't moved the needle forward, uh, and it hasn't promoted our interests. So uh, disappointed, hope you can uh, do a lot better by the next time that you're here. Let me ask you in a different context, economic statecraft. Uh, I started an initiative where what I would like to see and I'm wondering whether you have any focus in this regard, uh, not in the just traditional economic statecraft, but how do you create a whole of government approach to helping American businesses promote their products and services abroad? And for me, uh, I look at our agencies as they exist right now. We have a lot of great agencies, but they're all working out there on their own spheres, you know, from OPIC, XM, TDA, uh, foreign commercial service, but there is no whole of government approach, uh, unlike other countries that powerfully promote uh, U.S. businesses' uh, interests abroad in terms of products and services, which at the end of the day mean jobs here at home, which is my major focus of why it is important. Uh, so, and some of our ambassadors, uh, simply to be very honest with you, uh, don't see uh, economic statecraft as something that's very important in their portfolio. And of course, you know, depending on the country you're assigned to, there may be major uh, bilateral issues, but that doesn't mean you can't promote economic statecraft as part of that. And I consistently hear from American businesses, as I both hear it here at home and as I travel abroad, that they compete against other companies from other countries in the world in which their countries are actually very much engaged in pursuing helping them uh, achieve uh, market success. So can you give me any sense of whether the quadrennial review is going to include something along those lines or separately are you doing something along those lines? Sure, Senator. And just one point of clarification, we are taking steps on diversity. We were scheduled to have seen you a little while ago with Director Chacon. We can go into more detail and, and I want to continue that conversation. On the economic diplomacy front, um, as I alluded to in my uh, testimony, we will have economic uh, recommendations, specific economic diplomacy recommendations in the second QDDR. Uh, I'd also note that at post, um, under the Chief of Mission Authority, Foreign Commercial Service, the econ officers we have there um, are tasked with doing that, that work and coordinating. What we want to do is ensure that the uh, priority on this is elevated across the department, across all of our posts, and uh, both Secretary Clinton and Secretary Kerry have been very focused on that. We have some concrete ways and thoughts about how to do that. Um, I also hear, we hear from many businesses that find um, great uh, allies in our, in our embassies at doing that. So part of it, I think, is connecting. We've set up a new system called the bid system that it transparently shows from uh, post where there is an opportunity for a business investment and allows businesses to look at it. It's divided by sector. Um, it's easily, it, it, you can export the data in different formats. So we're looking for different tools to improve that. And we will have some concrete re recommendations in the QDDR. I look forward to seeing it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Flake. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for the testimony. We talked about uh, OCO, Overseas Contingency Operation Funding. As you know, the Budget Control Act uh, um, set limits for spending caps on international affairs, but uh, that which Congress and the President designate as overseas contingency operations are not subject to that budget cap. There's no definition of OCO in statute, um, and the State Department began requesting OCO funding in 2012 and has requested some ever since. Um, as we know, there, uh, that just adds to what is in the base um, budget. And I'm just trying to get a sense of where we're going here. Um, Secretary Kerry, answering questions that I asked, uh, wrote back saying these were for extraordinary circumstances, um, unforeseen, but we keep requesting it. And uh, the State Department, when it first requested, it was just for Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, then Pakistan was added, then Syria, now Jordan, Ukraine. I'm just wondering where it stops here. Can you kind of give me a sense of uh, how long we're going to use this device and, and have spending that is not subject to budget caps? Uh, thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, uh, OCO has, as you stated, um, uh, was created to deal with the extraordinary costs in the frontline states. Um, as I'm sure you know, traditionally, uh, when the State Department or when there has uh, when the State Department has confronted an emerging crisis or an unbudgeted uh, emerging problem, Congress has uh, turned to supplementals or provided additional appropriations. Um, it's been many years, with the exception of Ebola last year. It's not regular order uh, now to have supplementals. Um, OCO has been an important way for us to address extraordinary costs. It is ex we are still in an extraordinary period of time with respect to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And there have been emerging crises that we have had turned to OCO uh, to deal with the crisis in Syria. And, and Jordan, obviously, is, a, is an outgrowth of that. One step that we've taken in the FY16 president's budget is to ensure we're going through a process to migrate what are truly base costs into the base, and that's a DOD responsibility as well as a State Department responsibility, and be able to um, only uh, ask for, request, and fund things that are temporary, unforeseen, or um, uh, truly extraordinary in OCO. So um, in terms of the length of period of time, it could be a different budget mechanism. In the, on the domestic side, we have the Budget Control Act created a disaster cap. It allowed, you don't know when a disaster will happen, you know you need resources, there's a regular way to do it, and it's part of the Budget Control Act that's envisioned under the caps. We could entertain another mechanism to do this, but what isn't possible is to not be able to respond to emerging crises that we have a shared belief we should be engaged in. So I think with respect to OCO and the path forward, we're moving in a good direction to ensure the base costs are regularized, but I think there's a larger issue about how, in the absence of regular supplemental appropriations bills, what budget mechanism we can use to address, to address emerging crises. Well, uh, I'm just wondering what, uh, when we are using OCO funds uh, for the operation of embassies, in some of these areas, are, do we foresee having embassies in perpetuity in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq? Senator, and, the, those, and, excuse me. And if so, uh, how can we say that these are extraordinary or unforeseen expenses? Regularized operations of embassies should be funded in our base appropriations. In Afghanistan, we are moving to a civilian-led presence. We have to uh, uh, 
do a, assume a lot of responsibilities that the military provided before. Paying for those, setting up a trauma unit, um, providing additional security, those aren't ongoing. They are operational costs, and we have to, we, we have turned to OCO to fund those. Same with uh, some of the airlift capacity we have there, but we don't see that as an ongoing cost that we would fund forever in OCO. But, but we feel the need to put it in there now, though. That's correct. And, okay. and we would not, uh, our goal is to move truly based costs to base and where we have very unique and uh, operation, operational expenses that are truly unique in one time that OCO is the appropriate place to fund them. Security upgrades, um, as I mentioned, the trauma unit, other things like that. Well, the concern here obviously is that we simply supplant, uh, you know, and free up money in the base budget for things that may not be a priority. I mean, let's face it, uh, uh, by definition, the State Department is going to be dealing with unforeseen circumstances. There always are those, and uh, I would suggest we better find a way to deal with that in the base or the enduring budget rather than, than going to OCO. Um, I mean, like I said, we've only started with State Department. It was first just DOD, now it's State Department uh, just for the past couple of years, and I see that as a growing trend, and it's a dangerous one to have so many lines off budget. And uh, let me just say, for those of us who are concerned that we're simply supplanting, you know, or freeing up money in the base budget, there are programs that have received some criticism, like the Art in Embassies program. Now, some of them are small issues, but then there are bigger ones as well. Uh, $1 million for a sculpture, uh, one granite sculpture for the embassy in London uh, that uh, turned out to be too heavy for the embassy itself. Um, who's in charge of that program? What, what office at state? The offices, uh, the Office of Overseas Building Operations is in charge of the, uh, that program. Is that program ongoing? Is, it, is this an ongoing program or is this uh, one you, are you, the sorry, Art and Embassy arts, program? Arts and Embassies yes. program. Yes. Uh, yes, that's an ongoing program. It doesn't, is not, the, the Arts and Embassies program uh, receives donated art largely. The OBO um, part of our budget, the Overseas Building Operations, um, provides resources to outfit our embassies. Um, I'd, I'd be right. happy to follow up with additional information. I, I'd office. like that because these okay. amounts that I'm hearing are our taxpayer funding, 400000 for a sculpture of an albino camel staring in the eye of a needle in uh, Pakistan. Um, I mean, it's it just sometimes it doesn't pass the laugh test. Be happy to follow and, up with you. And uh, it, uh, it uh, really, when we're putting amounts off budget um, and continuing and growing OCO accounts, and we have in the base budget uh, some of these programs uh, to justify that, to our constituents, the taxpayers, it's a bit tough. I'm all for art, we need beautiful embassies overseas, it's our face around the world and that's fine, but, uh, but I would suggest that some of these programs need to be brought a little under control. And so I appreciate it, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. If I, if I could, would you certify that all of the OCO monies you're spending are absolutely not a single penny of that is for ongoing operations. Is that what I just heard you say? Our requested uh, OCO, so there's a, there's a distinction between how our funding is appropriated. When we're requesting OCO, we are making every effort to request funding for extraordinary or temporary costs. I know you're um, making efforts. I'm just asking. I want to move on to the next senator. But we, I, I'm just asking, would you certify to us 
That is our but every penny of OCO funding is only for these contingency operations, and not a single penny of that is for the kinds of things that would be ongoing operations. That is the objective of what so our request is. The answer is probably no to that. Is that correct? I, we have several years of OCO funding and several billions of dollars. I don't want to certify anything before this committee without being certain of it. Yeah. Senator Flake has just written me a letter to look at our FY13 OCO allocations, which we're doing the analysis on now, and we're happy to provide that to be able to go into that detail. Okay. I look forward to y'all pursuing that. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and, and thanks, Madam Secretary, uh, for this. Um, You'll be glad to know that your independent IG yesterday uh, assigned his priorities in the same way you did and put security of State Department personnel and our operations as first priority. Um, Senator King and I were in Beirut, Lebanon in February of 2014 and visited the memorial on the embassy compound to all those State Department officials who lost their lives. Most Americans remember the Marine barracks bombing and the loss of lives of military personnel in Lebanon during the 1980s, but they're not aware of how many State Department and other U.S. Uh, uh, sort of allied uh, governmental employees lost their lives as well. So that is the appropriate area. I want to focus on two parts of the Benghazi recommendations dealing with security. The IG testified yesterday that uh, there is a study uh, forthcoming that will look at all the, recomm the ARB recommendations after Benghazi and kind of give a progress report and that that might be done within the next couple of months. But two in particular that I want to talk about are embassy security training and then local guard contracting and vetting. Um, embassy security training is, is uh, encompassed by ARB 17, Benghazi ARB 17. The State Department started a study in 2009 to look at a, a facility that could be used for training folks, especially for high threat posts. 70 sites were examined uh, in the summer of 2012, and I'll put this before I came into the Senate. The State Department made a determination that the best site for this was at Fort Pickett in Virginia. That was in summer of 2012. Within a very few months after that decision was made and announced publicly, the attack occurred in Benghazi. The ARB recommendation 17 suggested that this facility and this training needed to be done. The State Department said yes, and we are responding to that by moving forward with the center at Fort Pickett uh, in connection with Secretary Kerry's confirmation hearings and his first status hearing before the committee. I asked if that was the State Department's intent. He told me it was. The OMB in the spring of 2013 sort of put a year-long hiatus on the project to reanalyze the multi-year effort that the State Department had been underway to determine uh, the need for the facility. Uh, during that time, the State Department's chief security witness, Greg Starr, testified before this committee that this was important to do and do promptly because lives were obviously at stake. In April of 2014, the administration, State Department, OMB together decided for a second time that this was, in fact, a priority and needed to be done to meet our priority number one, keeping our personnel safe. The President's 2016 budget has uh, funds proposed in it for this mission. Seven years after the search began for the facility and the need was identified, more than three years after the decision was announced, nearly three years after uh, Benghazi occurred and, and the ARB recommendations indicated that this was necessary. I just want to make sure that the State Department is, uh, this has been going for a very long time, that the State Department is still moving forward on this plan to try to keep our personnel safe by providing them the training that they need. Yes, Senator, we are, uh, we are really eager to move forward uh, with the construction of the FAST site in Fort Pickett. We, we want to train all of our foreign affairs 
personnel going to post in this uh, in important uh, training, and we are conduct concluding the environmental impact statement right now um, and hope to be able to um, break ground uh, later this spring and, and get going. It's critically important to keeping our personnel safe and while the ARB recommended this and that we, uh, that we have this site uh, and that we have this training and that we train everyone going to high-risk high, high uh, posts, we believe we need to train the entire Foreign Affairs Committee to be prepared because we're in such a complex threat environment. I mean, it would be, it would be wonderful. As much of a tragedy as Benghazi was, it would be wonderful to think we wouldn't face more. But we've had to evacuate two embassies since Benghazi, our embassy in Libya, obviously, in 2014, and more recently in 2015 already, the embassy in Yemen. That's a big deal, and it demonstrates the security challenges, which aren't getting easier. They're getting harder. Um, the second issue, which is sort of the subject of multiple of the ARB recommendations, deals with security uh, at the embassies themselves, especially in high-threat posts. We use Marine security guards. We use State Department security personnel. But there's also a practice of using uh, host government security and relying on them, or locally contracted security. An OIG report in June of 2014 analyzed whether local guard vetting processes were being followed. They chose six security contractors in high threat areas, and the OIG concluded that not one of the six was fully performing vetting procedures on local folks that were hired. Obviously, if you read the, um, uh, you know, the ARB report, the analysis of the Benghazi incident, the local security was very problematic uh, in the midst of that horrible thing. They were engaged in a pay dispute with the State Department, and some of them were kind of on a work slowdown, and you know that might have contributed to some of the challenges. Uh, talk to us about what the State Department is doing with respect to the vetting of local security, how, how you're choosing when to use them as opposed to using U.S. security assets. Um, and then when you do choose to use them, what is being done to make sure they're appropriately vetted? Thank you, Senator, very much for the question. Um, uh, the, the profile of, uh, the security profile of a particular post is determined um, by the regional security officer on the ground, by the chief of mission, by the Bureau of Diplomatic Security, and it is uh, a combination of both our personnel, um, often a local guard force, depending on the threat environment. We always engage the host country, um, and, and most places have good cooperation to provide protection, and that, that's critical, and part of how we risk whether, a, uh, how we rate whether a post is high risk. Um, we contract uh, for local guard forces all around the world, um, and it is really important that uh, the provision we were requesting in this authorization to contract with the best value as opposed to the lowest cost <coughs> ensures that we're getting the right type of guards to supplement and complement our security. Um, the IG report was important, um, highlighting some weaknesses that we've had in the vetting of those, of those guards, uh, some, some guards in some places. Part of that is the responsibility of our regional security officers at post. Part of it was uh, the problem of the, of the contractors, the companies themselves. And so we've taken those recommendations and, and are improving on them. But we do feel as though um, authority that would allow us to work with different contractors could also address this issue. In some places, um, the vetting, uh, the, there's insufficient records and information. And we're going to face that in, in certain environments around the world and, and try to, uh, uh, you know, we, th there aren't as good records keeping systems in, in some countries that we're operating in, and that's just something we have to work through and do the best job we can. But we feel like this authority would make a big difference. I really hope as part of the reauthorization, the additional authorities to make sure that these locally hired security are, are, to, are to be trusted. I hope we provide the authorities to the State Department they need. Thank you to the witness, and thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and I want to thank you again, and Senator Perdue, and, and, I, and our Deputy Secretary for creating the kind of environment um, 
that I hope will cause us to be successful. Y'all worked very well together and it's deeply appreciated. Senator Shaheen. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and thank I thank you and Senator Cardin and Senator Menendez for this effort to reauthorize um, the State Department. You know, I also serve, as several of us do, on the Armed Services Committee, and I think this past year, for the 51st year in a row, we passed an authorization for the Department of Defense, and wouldn't it be nice if we could count on every year passing an authorization for the State Department, and I hope that this will be the start of that effort. Um, now, one of the, the most positive um, statements about the direction of dealing with diplomacy and global affairs, I thought, occurred um, early in the administration when Secretary Gates and Secretary Clinton talked about the importance of rebalancing um, resources and emphasis between defense and state and the importance of diplomacy in helping to avoid conflicts in places. And so I, I do think that was an important initiative. I, I think it's one we need to continue. And one of the things that struck me as um, Senator Murphy was asking about um, ways to engage in public diplomacy to improve the communications as we're seeking to respond to terrorist and other efforts around the world. Um, as Senator Kane was talking about the need to train personnel for security threats, is that those are places where we're doing a lot on the defense side and we need to do a lot, and we are, on the diplomatic side, but how are you working together um, to address those kinds of joint um, challenges that the country faces that we should be dealing with in a coordinated way. Thank you very much, Senator. Um, recently, Secretary Carter came to the State Department to address our chiefs of mission when they were here for uh, a conference, and he spoke uh, for quite some time about his observation of how the relationship uh, over the course of his career has changed between state and the Defense Department and to the current moment where we really are coordinating and collaborating in so many places. I think about the work that we're doing in partnership in different places in Africa, the, some of the security training, the support that we're providing. Um, there's a, um, cer certain authorities that the Department of Defense has that we have concurrence on, the Secretary of State has concurrence on, to ensure that our diplomatic objectives and our uh, Defense Department objectives are aligned and coordinated. Um, I think that that I is critically important, and, and Secretary Gates and Secretary Clinton really uh, laid a foundation of partnership that we are seeking uh, to build upon, both on the resources side as well as on the authorities and the work that we're carrying out. So there's a whole host of examples of where we're working very well together. The President proposed the Counterterrorism Partnership Fund last year. We've requested it in our budget. Part of that is State Department. Part of that is that the, most of it is the Defense Department. But again, it's working together to say what are the civilian capabilities that the State Department is best suited to lead on in partnership with the, the, the core functions of DOD. So I think um, the leadership of both of our agencies in this administration is really committed to that principle. Um, that's encouraging to hear. It sort of raises the question in my mind about, and I support the efforts to address security of our embassy personnel because I share the, um, the belief that all of us here have that they're doing tremendous work under very difficult circumstances often. Um, but it 
makes me wonder if we really need a whole new facility to do that training or if we don't have existing facilities someplace where we're doing similar training where we could modify that to accommodate the needs of the State Department. Senator, the department undertook a review, as Senator Kane said, of many different sites. Um, uh, one, uh, one option that has been discussed is the law enforcement training facility in Georgia. Our combined assessment found that we would need to build or augment 90% of the capabilities that the State Department needs for its unique training, which isn't law enforcement in nature, sure. um, to do that. Uh, and that having both um, the capabilities and synergies in this region um, to get our entire foreign service, not just foreign service officers, everyone going to post, so that includes um, the intel community, that includes the Defense Department and others, to go through this training. So uh, we looked at many different places. Uh, I should say the administration looked at many different places and, and, and came to the conclusion that this was the right answer. And we feel strongly that we need to train people um, Security is a shared responsibility, and we have to equip everyone with the tools and resources and training to be safe at post. Well, I certainly agree with that. Um, let me ask the Inspector General reported that over the past six years that contracts worth a total of more than $6 billion were found to have incomplete records. Um, in some cases, files were missing. Um, that increases the risk of fraud and waste and abuse. Um, the IG identified contract management as a key challenge facing the department. Um, I know that um, the department has agreed with that. So what do you need in order to be able to improve your contract management and, and actually comply with what the inspector general was recommending? Thank you, Senator. You know, the, the State Department's amount of grants and contracts increased a lot with our um, investments in Iraq and Afghanistan. And one of the things that, that we really appreciated in the IG's review is that in that growth, uh, we needed to ensure our systems were, were sort of up to the task of managing that amount of money. And he has, and his office has pointed out several ways in which we need to do that. I think that um, getting qualified people in contract oversight um, positions and, and having those responsibilities is always a struggle in Washington. There's a lot of competition for those roles. And, um, and so do you have the, the positions approved to allow you to do that? If you could hire qualified people, do you have the positions have, to hire them into? We have added people. Um, we have added positions to do that. Uh, I think uh, we could do more with, with additional people and additional resources. Um, but that was one of the recommendations, and we have aligned resources there. Um, finding qualified people is important. We have great people, but finding more to fill that, uh, those positions. And training and a real understanding of the responsibilities is something that we have the capability to do, but we need resources to further develop. Well, certainly I, I hope that you will be successful at that. You know, we have a lot of people come through our office, I'll bet everybody on this committee does, who wants to work for the State Department, who um, is very idealistic about the, the role of the United States in the world and the difference that we can make. And um, it seems to me we've got a great pool, and if we can um, encourage them to think about their training in a way that would allow them to come to work for the department, that that would be very important. So thank you very much. Thank you. I know we have a vote that's getting ready to kick off here in a second. Uh, do especially either of our subcommittee leaders uh, have any additional questions? I'm sorry, Mr. Chairman, I have just one very brief, I think you can answer this quickly, I know we have to go to a vote, but 
Uh, we learned another uh, Washington acronym yesterday, ARB, uh, Accountability Review Boards. Would you comment on the report that, uh, you know, over the last um, 15, 16, well, 17 years, actually, we've had 12 of these ARBs, and some 40% of the recommendations are, are repeat. And I know many of these were not on your watch. Can you just, I don't want to go through a litany of, of those 40, but, you know, in your time there, um, what, what can you tell us about what you're doing now to follow up? I know these are backward looking and I know the IG and you are forward looking. Uh, I'm more concerned about that. But are there lessons that we can learn from these? Yes. Senator, in, in terms of the, the forward looking and backward looking, one principal responsibility I have is oversight of ARB uh, implementation of recommendations, not just for the Benghazi ARB, which obviously has been the most recent, but those going back further. Um, one, it, it's true there are topics that are repeated in terms of ARB recommendations, but the security environment and the circumstances also change. So um, increasing numbers of diplomatic security agents, for example, is a repeated recommendation. It's not that the numbers didn't increase, it's that an additional recommendation to add, we've nearly doubled the number of diplomatic security agents. So some of these we might think of as um, showing up again, not because we didn't implement it, but because the, the circumstances require it. In other cases, um, we need sustained implementation and oversight. Uh, that's why uh, the, the Deputy Secretary is focused on this. Secretary Clinton asked my predecessor to focus on it. I've assumed, uh, assumed that responsibility and will going forward. So some of it is circumstances have changed and some is about leadership and oversight. Thank you. I also have questions about uh, special um, uh, administrative positions, but I'll submit that in, in writing for the written testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Go, go ahead, Chair. Um, this is not really a question. I just want to commend the State Department for your work to improve the special immigrant visa program and to address um, the remaining long line of Afghans um, and Iraqis, although that program's almost finished, who are still waiting to get into this country, who have um, risked their own lives to help our um, men and women on the ground in those countries during the conflicts. And uh, it's a very important program, and I certainly applaud the State Department for your efforts. Thank you, Senator. Thank you for your support and, and helping us get the numbers of visas that we need to, to meet that demand. We have made a lot of procedural improvements and we are continuing it. We just made another one recently um, and we, we owe it um, to people um, to administer this program well and, and appreciate your attention to it because it's helped us uh, be better at, at our responsibilities. If I could last, and, and Senator Card may have a question too since the bell hasn't quite got off. I spent most of my life in the private sector and we, uh, you know, tried to build our companies and their capacity and one of the greatest things was seeing people uh, thrive and then educate their families in unique ways and all those kind of things. I see these special envoys that get created and of course there's no confirmation for most of those unless they're legislatively created and very few of them are. What effect does it have on the culture of the organization when you have professionals um, who've been there for years, who have responsibilities over certain areas, and then all of a sudden wafted in out of the blue, uh, there's some special envoy that's created that uh, has a special status. Um, um, what, what effect does that have over time on the organization itself when people, you know, themselves have trained to have those kinds of responsibilities themselves? Uh, well, the, the, the role of those uh, uh, special envoys is to supplement uh, the work that we're doing on a regular basis. Um, uh, 
many of them are to, to meet specific discrete issues or missions. Um, the Special Envoy for uh, the, building the ISIL coalition, for example, has a very specific mission. He's working closely with our Near Eastern Affairs Bureau, um, but he's going out and, and getting support around the globe for the coalition efforts. When Secretary Kerry came into the State Department, he asked us to do a review of special envoys and special offices and understand what was a critical mission that still existed, where we could reintegrate into the bureaus those functions. Um, and we did that. We've taken some functions and, 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 and normalized them. Um, and he's asked us to do a regular review of that. So we, we just established one over the summer, over last summer, for Ebola response. Now that that response is in a, a, a the, the disease is in a different place, we've regularized that back into the bureaucracy. So they do play an important role, um, and, and I think it's important that at Secretary Kerry's direction, we're regularly reviewing them to ensure the mission and mandate uh, are, are, are still relevant. Do you have anything you want to add before closing? I see Senator Markey's here, so let me yield to Senator Markey, but let me just say, what Senator Menendez said on diversity, there's a lot of us that are very concerned, and we would very much appreciate you keeping us informed as to how you're making progress in using current tools and looking at new tools to improve the numbers of diversity. Absolutely. We'll do that, Senator. Excuse me. Senator Markey. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you for your good work. Uh, the African continent is home to incredibly challenging statistics. Nine UN peacekeeping operations, 14.9 million people affected by conflict, violence, and human rights abuses. But at the same time, there are incredible signs of progress on the horizon. The number of mobile phone subscriptions in sub-Saharan Africa is predicted to rise to 930 million people with cell phones by 2019, up from 635 million uh, right now. In 2015, sub-Saharan Africa's GDP is expected to grow at 4.5%, making it the fastest growing economic zone in the world, outpacing Asia, by, which is 4.3% growth this year. But you can't work in a continent like Africa on a shoestring budget or with insufficient personnel and expect to see positive results. And I've been made aware of a recent study conducted by the State Department that reveals some important and concerning facts about the Africa Bureau's resource level. Uh, the Africa Bureau completes more assignments uh, than any other bureau. Its staffing level is the second lowest of all the regional uh, bureaus, uh, but has the second highest resource requirement for program implementation and policy initiatives. This means that they are doing a whole lot more work than most bureaus, but with far fewer personnel. For example, there are 159 domestic personnel slots for the Africa Bureau compared to Europe's 306. So in order to meet those many demands from critical elections to emerging crises, the Africa Bureau relies extensively on temporary movement of personnel from one position to another. For a continent with so many crises and opportunities, this staffing pattern prevents genuine preparedness to handle uh, challenges as they arise. Can you tell me about the department's plans to review and translate the findings of this report into genuine staffing and structural improvements for Afri the Africa Bureau's um, resources? Thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, we commend Assistant Secretary Thomas Greenfield for undertaking this review of, of her bureau, um, the workload that they're facing, the numerous crises they're dealing with. They had a, a, 
uh, a lot to deal with last year with the Africa Leaders Summit, not to mention uh, the various global challenges that we're dealing with in Africa, the, 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 in the region. Um, I've met with uh, the Assistant Secretary, as has the Undersecretary for Management, and we're working through the requests to see how they can be addressed. Um, it, obviously, we're in a tight budget environment, and we have to look to see how we can align resources. Just yesterday, in fact, Secretary Kerry invited Assistant Secretary Green, Thomas Greenfield to present her findings to the entire senior leadership of the department, both to show as an example of how we should be looking at our operations and empowering our assistant secretaries to do that analysis, but also to make clear um, what types of burdens uh, the Bureau is facing. So we're taking it very seriously, and we're working through those requests. Okay, great. In 2011, the State Department expanded its existing office of the Undersecretary for Economic, Energy, and Agricultural Affairs and replaced it with an office for the Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy, and Environment. Part of this effort was meant to promote and prioritize states' role in economic policy development overseas, but the inclusion of environmental and energy issues placed more responsibility in one sole office over the State Department's separate but related work in the three areas. And I applaud any effort to prioritize the environmental and economic issues in our diplomacy. However, I'm concerned that another administration, one less concerned about issues like renewable energy and a clean environment, could easily sweep away any policy progress made by having an undersecretary uh, devoted to economic growth, energy, and the environment. In order to demonstrate our country's enduring commitment to these important issues, should we seek to codify the creation of an undersecretary for economic growth, energy, and the environment? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Senator. The, the creation of that undersecretariat and the emphasis on environmental issues is really important. Um, our Bureau of, of um, Environmental Science uh, works on a variety of issues across the globe and the region. Uh, I think that what what you would see, regardless of administration, uh, is if, if there are critical environmental issues affecting our, 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 the countries we're engaged with, um, whether they're mitigating impacts of climate change or others, our diplomats and our uh, foreign service officers are focused on helping countries address those. And I don't think that will change. Um, the, the, the system that we have established, the Undersecretariat and the bureaus um, uh, have expertise and focus on that. And while political leadership, uh, of course, changes in as administrations change, um, not necessarily the experts who are there carrying out that work. Yeah, thank you. And finally, in uh, reviewing available funding for Africa that addresses good governance, it appears that since fiscal year 2011 to fiscal year 2015, there has been more than a 50% drop in available funds that deals with the issue of good governance. These funds are used for crucial activities surrounding, amongst other things, elections, preparation. These funds were pivotal in U.S. support uh, to the recent successful Nigerian elections. We hear often that the United States prioritizes the promotion of democracy and governance, yet the funds available for this critical pursuit are shrinking steadily. So could you explain how the United States can continue to claim we are prioritizing democracy and governance, but have 50% less resources that we're going to dedicate to that effort? Senator, we, 
We are very focused on working with Congress to try to receive um, as high a level as possible to support those efforts. We think they're critically important. They address many priorities we have, particularly in the African content, continent. Um, there are issues that we're working through um, to ensure that there are flexible resources to meet those needs. It's a, it's a big priority. Because we, have, uh, we don't have as much um, uh, as we'd like uh, right now, I've actually started a group uh, in my office working with our budget folks and some of the regional bureaus to figure out how we can leverage the dollars we do have to go even further partnering with organizations uh, and with other efforts. So we're trying to take the resources we do have and leverage them and, and have them go further, but ultimately we'd like to see a higher level appropriated in those accounts. Thank you for all, your, uh, all of your efforts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, Deputy Secretary, we thank you for uh, your testimony today. You acquitted yourself very well, as always, and we appreciate the way you're working with all of our offices towards a good end. And I have no further questions. I think we have a vote. Um, uh, again, we look forward to working closely with you. The record will be open through the close of business Thursday. For people who want to ask additional questions, we would just ask that you and your staff uh, answer those promptly. And we look forward to a successful authorization. Thank you again for we'll being here. Without objection and with the committee's approval, we're adjourned.